The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Michael Simmons on some of the most ridiculous COVID fines, CJ Farrington on the light and darkness of Russian culture, and Aidan Hartley on the return of the buffalo. First up, Michael Simmons. A fine mess. While Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer await the police's judgement, there has been no end to the fines issued to others caught by their lockdown rules. At last count, some 136,000 fixed penalty notices had been issued in Britain. Durham Police, a fairly easygoing force by Covid standards, have handed out just 1,090. Is it a bit mean to fine someone for having had a glass of wine or a beer at work? Perhaps but no more so than the fines still being issued under the lockdown rules that Johnson and Starmer both voted through. A student in Leeds was fined £10,000 for organising a snowball fight. A beggar was fined £434 for having his cap out at King's Cross Station. A homeless man was arrested at Liverpool Street Station for being outside without a reasonable excuse. Staff at a London chip shop were told to attend a business meeting during the second lockdown when work meetings were allowed. They all received a fine because the police decided the meeting could have been held online. A Devon landlord held a Christmas gathering for staff on the same day as the Downing Street Christmas bash and received a £4,000 fine. Rules are rules, for some at least. The police won't investigate any more offences, but the backlog is such that the cases keep being heard in magistrates' courts and fines keep coming. No one in 10 Downing Street, meanwhile, has been charged more than £50. In each lockdown case, the defendant can enter a written plea. Many are heartbreaking. A 66-year-old man from Broccoli said, I'm a sick person with heart failure and other problems. I went to the allotment to get some greens as I don't eat meat. I'm a pensioner struggling to pay my way and in debt already. I didn't mean to break the law. He was caught chatting with others at his allotment, found guilty and fined £100. A childminder pleaded with the court that she had just popped round to drop off a birthday card. I didn't realise there would be other people present. I did not enter the property. Too bad. She was found chatting outside to others, convicted, and fined £250. Another woman who had reluctantly agreed to join her boyfriend for a car journey to mark his birthday was fined twice for the same outing. She appealed against the second fine, saying she could not have walked 13 miles home after being stopped the first time. Her appeal was rejected. Fair trials, a legal watchdog, say many of these fines are unjust and unlawful but the system is set up to discourage anyone from challenging them, and only 2% have been contested. Challenging your fine is a daunting process, and a secretive one. If you don't pay your fine, you are dealt with under the single justice procedure, which is designed to stop cases going to court. Cases aren't dealt with openly, but are adjudicated by a magistrate and a legal clerk. Insiders refer to this as Courtroom 78. Lists of cases weren't made public for the first six months of the pandemic and only became so because of lobbying from reporters. Little effort is made to notify someone that they are the subject of an SJP. If you don't spot your letter in the post, the court cracks on anyway. A man from Reading found out he'd been fined via his local paper. 
The courts are still struggling to keep up with the lockdown laws which criminalised so much of everyday life. If the authorities do take weeks to decide Starmer's fate, it will be understandable. Thanks to him, they have rather a lot on. That was Michael Simmons. Next, it's C.J. Farrington. Vladimir Putin makes no secret of his love for Russian culture, and Russian literature in particular. A body of work whose achievements, Dostoevsky once claimed, justifies the existence of the entire Russian people. But if that same oeuvre now inspires a man instigating unprovoked war, doesn't that raise urgent questions about its contemporary validity? For some, these questions are best expressed via cancellation. In Wales, the Cardiff Philharmonic recently pulled a plug on performances of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, Marsh and Second Symphony, The Little Russian, an old and patronising name for Ukraine. In Ireland, Trinity and University College orchestras have excised all Russian music from their repertoire, while in London, the Royal Opera House has eliminated the Bolshoi's summer season. In Europe, Polish, Czech and Swiss theatres have withdrawn performances of operas by Tchaikovsky and Mussorgsky, alongside cancellations of Tchaikovsky's orchestral works in Italy and Croatia. Classical musicians like Alexander Malafiev and Anastasia Kopakina have had performances cut in Canada and Switzerland, despite public denunciations of Putin's war. Regarding Russian authors, what of Chekhov? Cancelled in Chile. Dostoevsky? Invalidated in Italy. And Tolstoy? Liquidated in Los Gatos, California, where Netflix has scrapped Anna Kay, a planned adaptation of Anna Karenina. On a slightly less exalted plane, Russia has been excluded from the Eurovision Song Contest, while bartenders across the globe have filmed themselves pouring Russian vodka down the drain. Simultaneously, entertainment giants like Warner Brothers and Sony have pulled cinema screenings and games releases in Russia, while tech platforms like Spotify have shut down services across Putin's domain, raising a new and electronic iron curtain across old borders. An array of sporting exclusions has also occurred, ranging from Wimbledon's controversial ban on Russian and Belarusian players to Russia's loss of the Champions League men's final and Formula One's Russian Grand Prix. Together with growing reports of social aggression towards expat Russians, it seems clear that some degree at least of Russophobia has found a foothold in Western democracies. This is not to claim, with Putin, that the West has set out en masse to cancel Russia and Russians, although such reactions may well increase in proportion to the hideousness of the conflict in Ukraine. For now, cancellors remain in the minority, no matter what the posters say on Moscow's Novinsky Boulevard. Neither have all cancellations been undertaken on a simplistic, knee-jerk basis. Cancellation might reasonably occur, for instance, based on principled arguments about Russian culture itself. Take Russian literature, for example, which, like most national literatures, undeniably displays some deeply troubling elements. There is a pan-Slavism, a martial enthusiasm, and Russian exceptionalism evident in Dostoevsky's works. There are the Pushkin poems, written in praise of Tsarist Polish repressions, and there is the bizarre and unsettling utopia dystopia laid out more recently by Mikhail Yuryev in The Third Empire, Russia as it ought to be, which some claim inspires Putin's current military campaign. Putin knew Yuryev, and the novel has been described as the Kremlin's favourite book. More widely, there is a prominent and recurring strain within Russian literature 
that inculcate sympathy for perpetrators of crimes rather than their victims. This is exemplified for Milan Kundera by a tendency within Dostoevsky to attend to feelings rather than reasoning, and even by Tolstoy's statement in the title of a late, incomplete short story that there are no guilty people in the world. Almost the whole of Russian literature, wrote D. H. Lawrence, consists in the phenomenal coruscations of the souls of quite commonplace people. But what happens when those commonplace people are conscript soldiers, raping and murdering their way through Ukrainian villages? For Nina Khrushcheva, Khrushchev's adoptive granddaughter, Russians are used to living in fiction rather than reality. But if this is the kind of fiction they live in, maybe cancelling it isn't just rationally defensible, but ethically necessary too. We could jettison Mikhail Yuryev's work, which glowingly describes Vladimir II the Restorer as instigating a new age of Russian hegemony without much loss. But Russian culture more widely boasts many vital and deeply humane qualities alongside its disquieting elements. Dostoevsky may have said that war rejuvenates men, but he was also one of literature's greatest opponents of ideological fervour and its frequently murderous consequences. As one of the characters in his novel Demons famously states, from unlimited freedom, I conclude with unlimited despotism. Tolstoy, for his part, infused his works with spiritual pacifism and rustic communitarianism, and in Anna Karenina, created Konstantin Levin, a deathless archetype of cross-class empathy and a fierce critic of Russian military adventuring. Written after the bloody upheavals of revolution, Anna Akhmatova's Requiem presents us with a portrait of life, or rather death, under Stalin's regime, a harrowing yet salutary reminder of the suffering engendered by absolutism. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in the Gulag Archipelago, undermined all forms of totalitarianism with his claim that the divide between good and evil runs not through states or classes, but right through every human heart. And so on down the years in an almost unrivaled body of work that daunts and inspires in equal measure. It is no accident that sales of Russian classics soared in Europe following the invasion. In the end, though, it is the Russian people themselves, and not Western armchair warriors, who must mobilise their culture and language and send it into battle for humane ends. Perhaps more than any other nation, Russia lives in the shadows cast by its artists, and can always turn to their great, if flawed, humanity to find inspiration for kindlier forms of rule. To support progress, Russians must engage with their own art, but so should the West in its support, despite, and indeed because of, Putin's recklessness. That was C.J. Farrington. And finally, Aidan Hartley. Why Kent is being bulldozed by Buffalo. Buffalo are now living in the fens of Kent. Why? Have we slipped into the metaverse of Lewis Carroll? He thought he saw a buffalo upon the chimney piece. These are not African buffalo, those fierce beasts that recently charged but narrowly missed killing my wife at home in Kenya. No, these are the more docile water buffalo, and so this story isn't nonsense. He looked again and found it was his sister's husband's niece. 
Clever scientists on sabbatical from modelling pandemics and climate change have introduced four water buffalo to the Ham Fen Nature Reserve near Sandwich. These wetlands become clogged with silt, causing floods, and the idea is that the buffalo, with their huge bodies, will bulldoze channels through the mud. I've seen hippos do something similar in Rift Valley lakes. Here is the complete opposite of feather-footed through the plashy fen. This is bodacious bovids splooshing around in poo. The ham fen plan will allegedly save money on machinery, and because buffalo voraciously eat back rank fluvial vegetation, the hope is they will open up jungly quagmires so more amphibians, insects and birds can thrive. So let's leave our new Kentish immigrants waggling their hairy ears beneath drop handlebar horns, sinking in a fetid jacuzzi of marsh gases and umpska. It's time to pay tribute to the water buffalo as a species, since it helped bring us both history's greatest invention for teenagers and an alibi for Prince Andrew, pizza. Europe was home to a prehistoric water buffalo, but this became extinct in Pleistocene times, probably leaving its bones alongside all the lions, elephants and hippopotami fossils that have become discovered beneath Trafalgar Square. All today's water buffalo are Asiatic. They came from that cluster of cow-like species, the aurochs, bantengs, gowers and gaiales. While in Europe, they were domesticating their variety of auroch, which became the Bostaurus, the breeds you see today in Britain. Meanwhile, the Harapans out east were taming Asian aurochs to produce Bos indicus, the dewlapped, humped zebu cow. High in the mountains were yaks, ponies and small stock. Down in the deltas and floodplains appeared the water buffalo. As Rome went into decline, the story is that Asiatic nomads called the Pannonian Avars, menacing Byzantium, brought water buffalo along with them. In time, the Avars vanished. Water buffalo spread into Europe. Armies used them for transport and milked them. They spread to southern Italy from the 10th century, thrived in the Volturno and Sele plains, and produced buffalo's milk and cheese for the markets in Naples and Salerno. This part of Italy remains home of the mozzarella di bufala campana, the history and strict regulation of which you can read about on the website of the Consorzio di Tutela Mozzarella di Bufala Campana. Bourbon kings, the Neapolitan poor who invented the pizza, the pizza's global conquest after the Second World War, it's a fascinating story of the porcelain white stuff that isn't even a cheese. That was Aidan Hartley. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. Thank you.